Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. A couple topics on the table for this week's program. Later on in the show, our listeners will remember that earlier this year, the House Armed Services Committee was working on a proposal that would have completely eliminated seven of the defense agencies. Well, I think it's fair to say there was not a tremendous amount of analytical rigor behind that proposal, and it uh, didn't end up passing. It did show that Congress is getting interested in the subject of how the fourth estate is managed. And as it turns out, there's already a law on the books that requires DOD to conduct its own regular analyses of those fourth estate agencies and answer questions like, do we still need each of the agencies? And could the services they deliver be handled by the military services instead? The Government Accountability Office says DOD has been basically ignoring that requirement for at least the last six years. We'll talk to GAO about the implications of that information gap. First up, though, the Army wants to use artificial intelligence and machine learning to help its electronic warfare officers sort out signal from noise on the battlefield. And to pick the best solutions, it's using an innovative approach. Instead of a traditional procurement, it's giving industry and academia a set of challenges using real-world data from Army sensors. Rob Bonto is Emerging Technologies Director for the Army Rapid Capabilities Office. He talked with me about what the Army is learning from that challenge process. The problem space uh, uh, generated from, or the genesis is from, uh, some of the work that the RCO has uh, uh, done uh, previously in supporting, uh, enhancing the electronic warfare capabilities that we uh, we have been providing uh, to Europe, uh, Europe specifically, uh, where uh, enhancing the sensor footprint uh, for electronic warfare officers also means that we we enhance the amount of data that's coming in from those sensors. Uh, and then you only have the same amount of electronic warfare officers with more data in a uh, more complex electro uh, spectrum environment, you know, things like cell phones and Wi-Fi signals and all kinds of other stuff in a, uh, an environment like Europe, you have a lot of different types of data. So the thought was to look at some emerging technologies, specifically in the artificial intelligence and machine learning space and see how you could apply that. So with that, we, we developed this challenge to get at how you would apply signal classification, leveraging artificial intelligence and machine learning. So that's where the genesis of, of the challenge had come from uh, and uh, where we are today, you know, a little less than, I guess, a year of when we, uh, we started thinking about this problem. Uh, that we had a, a successful challenge. And just as an initial matter, why did you start out thinking that artificial intelligence and machine learning were, were potentially good answers to these problems? So the commercial industry uh, is doing it in, in leaps and bounds on the, the image recognition, uh, video recognition, et cetera, space. Why can't we do it in applying that same type of uh, mindset to helping identify and classify signals in the RF space. And as you as you kind of started out this process, was it was it clear to you that somebody was going to have to design new algorithms to to tackle this specific problem versus just buying, you know, a, a COTS product that does artificial intelligence slash machine learning? Or did you not know? Yeah, uh, so uh, that's a great question. So we, we initially had started a uh, open door campaign on engaging with different uh, industry partners and academic partners and, and other services and agencies 
where there isn't a lot of this work being done. There's some thoughts and white papers, et cetera, um, that we uh, then said, all right, the best way to try to look at who's the best of the best in this area uh, is put out some uh, technical data and get some technical metrics back. So, um, so we knew going in that this was a space that uh, folks weren't applying AI or really machine learning uh, as much as they are in the image recognition and other types of AI application that the commercial industry is doing today. Okay, and so to get some good answers back from industry, you decided to structure this as a challenge instead of a traditional RFI, FAR-based procurement process, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let's talk about why you did that, first of all, and then we'll, we'll come back and talk about how you structured it. Sure, absolutely. So so why? Uh, so the why is we wanted to, to model uh, how the commercial uh, space is doing it, uh, advancing uh, this data science problem, and that's really what it is, is to understand what the the data you're trying to look at and then building algorithms to, to, to help best predict uh, what type of information that is. Um, so the commercial space does this with things like Kaggle, uh, communities of data scientists, so where they put data sets out and say, hey, here is a data set. We want to help uh, and identify different types of elements in that data set. You, um, uh, you data scientists come back and, and, and compete against each other to see who's the best and the best in that area. Now they use it also for hiring and all kinds of other different types of things as well, but we were looking at modeling it to, to provide what we uh, want to frame the problem in, uh, so that initial data uh, that we've, uh, we've created, uh, and then getting technical metrics back uh, from from industry or academia or whoever wanted to participate, it's it, it's a it's a different approach, and I think it's more of a, uh, uh, a lack of a better word challenge for the community to go at it and and decompose the data uh, to understand it and build the algorithms and compete against each other versus just writing a white paper and submitting it and 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 hopefully the government understands what the the uh, architecture and potential benefits there are. Uh, this way, we're actually getting some metrics back to say, hey, their their algorithms are pretty good. Uh, let's let's explore that with them. Yeah, say say a little bit more about that. What are the downsides of that that white paper process? Where where does that process work, and and why did you decide it wouldn't work here? So, so the white paper processes, you know, you're going to submit a, a request for information. You put it out onto things like uh, FedBiz Opportunities or FedBiz.gov, um, and you put your uh, request for information. Hopefully, you frame the problem enough so a uh, a partner, either be uh, a, a industry partner or an FFRDC or someone else that wants to submit to those white papers understands the problem enough by what you you put in your paragraph that you put out there uh, and they're able to submit back a technical enough white paper that could address the problem uh, in in a way that the government then could understand to select them as the best approach um, this way uh, we're we're putting the uh, a um, a subset of the the problem that we want to look at 
and we're getting a um, mathematical uh, response back from them. So we're getting the, the metrics on how well they're performing. So that is a way for us to say mathematically they are better than someone else. Someone else. Yeah, and it sounds like the other virtue of this is you're, you're requiring them to show that they've got a product or an approach that actually works with real-world data, if I'm understanding this right. That, that's, that's absolutely correct. It's not, not a thought. Um, it, you know, it's not, a, uh, it's not at that, you know, it might be a, a lower TRL level, but it's actually something that is running today. DARPA, of course, is is pretty famous for running challenges. Is this is this the? I mean, was did you borrow heavily from from that approach? And why is that that challenge yeah. approach generally not used as much in the the military departments? Yeah, so absolutely, I, I absolutely credit to to DARPA and all their challenges and grant challenges that they they have done and continue to do. Uh, so yes, uh, uh, worked closely with uh, experts in in DARPA to help. Uh, initially stand up what we were doing for our challenge um, and and I think why uh, the army and military space doesn't leverage them as as much as it's it's a different way of doing things it's just it's outside of the normal far based procurement uh, cost schedule performance that programs are doing uh, to to get at a problem um, it, it's just a different way of doing things it's it's through the, the, the mechanisms are there um, and everybody can leverage them. Uh, if you go out and, and, and think about how you want to get to the solution differently. That's Rob Monto, the Emerging Technologies Director at the Army Rapid Capabilities Office. He's back with us after a short break. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we get back to our conversation with Rob Monto, the Emerging Technologies Director at the Army Rapid Capabilities Office, we're talking about the RCO's Signal Classification Challenge. It's the Army's new approach to get its hands on innovative AI and machine learning technologies for electronic warfare. And, and Rob, let's talk a little bit more about how you actually structured this challenge. I mean, how did you present the problem to industry slash academia slash other participants? And, and what kind of tools and requirements and, and boundaries did you give them? Sure. Uh, yep, absolutely. So so how do we how do we structure the the problem? So the the problem was a, a simple enough problem statement to say the, the electromagnetic spectrum is is a complicated environment, and we want to get at leveraging artificial intelligence and machine learning to to understand what that spectrum environment is. Uh, and we structured the challenge in a way that we would provide that um, that training set of data, what you would need for that upfront. 90% of what you need to do for uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning is is collection and correlating data, well-tagged, et cetera, of what the elements are in that training set so folks could build algorithms to then train against that data set uh, in an efficient manner so they're, they're, they have a, a high level of probability of identifying uh, data that would come into their algorithm after they've trained on that training set. So the first step was building a training set that was very well labeled, uh, and then we would 
we provided that to the the community that had signed up for our challenge. They had time to do the data science on it to understand how the data is structured, how it's tagged, et cetera. So then they could build their algorithms to ingest that training set and learn from it. And then we gave them time uh, once we released the first set of test data, which would be essentially a subset of training data that's not marked. It's just randomized data that's not labeled as, you know, it's this type of this type of signal or this type of modulation. Um, in other words, roughly would, the same thing that would come off of Army sensors in, let's say, Europe. It, it, uh, for for a, a way to explain it, absolutely. So it's just a, a stream of data that uh, is not, you don't know what it is, and then they would run that through their algorithms and provide metrics back to say how well they think it might be X, Y, or Z. And we have, you know, we know what the master codes are, so we're able to say if they are uh, correct or not and how close uh, they actually are. Uh, and we did that twice. So the first set was more of a, uh, lack of a better word, benign set of test data. So it think of it, so let's think of it like uh, uh, images. So in the image world, a, a benign set is you have an image of a cat and it's a full cat and you could see it's a cat um, or, or an image of a dog and you could see it's a full dog. It's, you know, the four legs, tail, you know, ears, et cetera. Um, that was the first set. It was very clear um, that is it is X or Y, um, but they had to tell us what it was and what their probability was. The next set would be, you know, a partial image, uh, you know, it might be just the whiskers and nose of a cat versus the full cat and the same thing, you know, if it's, if, uh, i.e. if it's a dog. Um, the, the second set was a little bit more noise on what you would say in the, uh, the machine learning environment. Uh, and, and then they would run that same, that same test uh, uh, process and submit the, the metrics back to us. And that's, uh, that's kind of how we structured the, the challenge. So we saw, you know, folks that were uh, uh, running up against in, in training, uh, running up against the first uh, test set and running up against the second test set and seeing how well they were doing against each other. And then at the end, you know, the, the top three were the winners. Um, yeah. So talk a bit about uh, the well, how do I say this? Talk a little bit more about the the reasoning behind attaching prize money to those top three winners, because even the top award, one hundred thousand dollars, it's it's not a huge amount of money. What's what's the basic reasoning for putting um, prize money on, 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 on these top three? Incentive. Uh, it's really incentive for, for someone to it, it was a 90 day challenge. Uh, it wasn't that long of a challenge, but also incentive for folks to really get to that top spot um, and and be a uh, uh, um, the best performer at least in this challenge. So it was really just more of a incentive to to, to further the uh, advancement of this type of technology in this area. Um, not 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 asking you to characterize the work of any individual performer, but taken as a whole what was what was kind of your sense of how well you know the state of technology was able to meet this particular challenge i mean on the spectrum of whoa we're really not there yet to 
yep, this is really good stuff, and we think we can move forward. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's really good stuff, and I think we can move forward. Um, and, and you definitely saw a uh, rise of tide, uh, if you will, from the beginning uh, initial test set to the even the second test set of where people definitely the community got better as they they uh, tweaked their algorithms to get better performance coming out of them so um, the data science community that was at least in this challenge uh, uh, there was a rise of tide of everybody that they were getting better and better at understanding how you would apply artificial intelligence and machine learning to this specific problem space um, so I think we definitely got to the point of advancing the area uh, on, on, on applying uh, machine learning and AI uh, for the spectrum space. Uh, it, it, was, it was really good to see. What do you think um, what do you think you guys learned from the challenge process itself? I mean, what, what other areas might this sort of approach make sense in and, and how might you refine it going forward if you use it again? <clears throat> so uh, data, data, data is your your friend in in uh, machine learning and AI. So that upfront uh, collection and uh, cataloging of data is key. Uh, so we were we were learning as we were shaping the challenge upfront on how we needed to do that. So lessons learned there, uh, and um, and I think execution wise, uh, it was. Uh, and, and maybe some of the other teams or competitors might have a different uh, different perspective. I th we gave them a very low bar uh, low low bar or, or barrier to entry. Um, signing up on a website, uh, being able to download, submit all via the web. Um, so I think the the process we did we we executed it pretty well. Um, and uh, the mechanisms that. The, the challenge authority and the prize authority uh, allow the government to to do uh, once you figure those steps out is is fairly simple. So um, it, it it would uh, it would be interesting to see how other organizations or other entities start leveraging these types of challenges to 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 get at what the best of the best is out there. So you said that the the outcome of this initial step was that yep this is really good stuff and we can move forward. So what is what is moving forward look like? What what are your next steps here? To uh, to, to be honest, uh, to be determined. Um, we we know we want to take a next phase, um, and we'll we'll look at if it's uh, you know um, uh, bringing in and prototyping some of these capabilities into uh, electronic warfare uh, systems or. Is it refining and providing even more data to these uh, data science communities, uh, especially the ones that are really centered around this the spectrum uh, challenge that we had we had uh, uh, just completed, providing them with even more types of data so they could uh, further refine their algorithms to be more encompassing of things that might not just be uh, signal modulations, but there might be other types of um, signal uh, signal types that we could provide to them so they could refine it even more. Uh, so there's there could be two different types of approaches going forward, it, uh, and, and that's to be determined. I mean, the real reason I ask is I, I think the question industry always has whenever anyone in DoD tries an alternative acquisition approach I mean, the reaction usually seems to be that that's great that you're trying something new, but 
show me a pathway that that tells me that you're eventually going to be able to move this into a program of record or conduct some other type of activity that lets you buy these capabilities that you like at scale. Are there at least mm-hmm. legal pathways that you can envision where you could do that in this case? Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, I, I will just leave it at that, um, working with our, our, our legal partners and, and our contracting folks within the RCO. Uh, there are legal, there are pathways for us to be able to do that, uh, even if we didn't do anything uh, for a next challenge, we're able to do that for prototyping or, or, or next phases of army integration. But there is, when you say next challenge, just so I understand there, there is, there is a plan for another challenge on this exact issue or. Yeah, that's, so that's what I was saying of if it, it could be a, uh, a prototyping activity on um, where we bring some of the, the algorithms of these winners in, uh, into uh, an actual system and prototype and integrate it, or we could put out another challenge to it, even advance the, the, the data set that we we put out there. So initially it was a, just a set of modulations that we put out as what the community was starting to work on. So you could kind of layer that and maybe it's a different type of uh, signal. It could be, you know, Wi-Fi signals or cell phone signals or something like that uh, to give uh, another layer of, of data so the community could advance their algorithms uh, to have a, lack of a better word, wider spectrum of things that they could identify. Um, and, I, and I hope uh, hope the community that was involved mm-hmm. in the, the challenge uh, got some lessons learned from from uh, the data and the environment that we, we provided for uh, the signal classification challenge. Uh, I think the Army uh, and the RCO has learned a lot uh, going through this process and, uh, and hope to do more of these. Rob Monto is the Emerging Technologies Director at the Army's Rapid Capabilities Office. We'll post more information about the Army's signal classification challenge we've been talking about at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. Another short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some of the major blind spots the Pentagon has when it comes to management of the so-called Fourth Estate, the defense agencies and field activities. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbin. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Each year, the Defense Department spends more than $100 billion to run its more than two dozen defense agencies and field activities. And by law, DoD is supposed to conduct reviews every two years to decide whether those DAFAs are still needed and whether the services they provide could be delivered more economically by the military services. But according to the Government Accountability Office, the department hasn't done a formal assessment since at least 2012. Because of that, GAO says the Pentagon is missing some major opportunities to cut waste, duplication, and overlap. Elizabeth Field is Acting Director for Defense Capabilities and Management at GAO. She talked with me about the findings. The 27 defense agencies and field activities are intended to provide consolidated services across more than one Department of Defense component. And the idea here is to help make the department more efficient, potentially save money. And what Congress directed the Department of Defense to do was reassess them on a biennial basis to make sure that they truly are meeting that intended purpose and that there is a continuing 
need for those defense agencies and field activities. At the time of our review, the statutory requirement was not particularly detailed. For example, the department did not need to submit a report to Congress detailing its review. Since then, and I think in large part due to our work, Congress has reissued that requirement and made it more explicit and directive. For example, the department now needs to record its review of the defense agencies and field activities in a report, and that report needs to contain certain elements. So, it, you know, especially at this particular moment, when, when Congress seemed to be taking a new interest in, in reform of the fourth estate in the last NDAA cycle, and also when business reforms a top priority for the department itself. This seems like exactly the kind of information and analysis you would want to have. So do, do we have any sense of why the department stopped producing these reports around the 2012 timeframe? That's a great question. When we talked with agency officials about why they discontinued these reports, they told us that they simply weren't a priority for department leadership at the time, particularly given the amount of resources that it took to conduct the reviews and write the reports. They also pointed to some other processes they have in place, such as the annual budget development process, that they felt satisfied the requirement. When we looked at those processes, we really found that they did not represent a comprehensive or thorough review of the DAFAs. And that's an interesting point because, of course, the department is supposed to justify all of its activities and its budget submissions every year. Why, why did GAO feel that that was not adequate in the case of the DAFAs? Well, they were really not, as a part of those processes, taking a hard look at whether the department, the, the uh, DAFAs, excuse me, were in fact still needed, that they were in fact providing a service in the most efficient or economical manner possible. Another interesting point raised by the report is that there, there's a subset, of course, of the, the defense agencies and field activities that have been designated combat support agencies. And I think you say that DOD actually does a, a fairly decent job of doing regular reviews and, and finding efficiencies and, and being a little bit more outcome-oriented in those studies. So DOD does know how to do effective studies in this area, right? They absolutely do know how to do it, and you're right. That subset of reviews, when we looked at them, were much more rigorous and uh, reflective of key characteristics of quality evaluations than the defense agency and field activity reports were. We think one of the reasons that those, what are called CSARs, were better than the DAFA reports is that the department had in place very good internal guidance that articulated what the department expected to see in those reports. They don't have similar internal guidance for the defense agency and field activity reviews. That's why one of our recommendations is that the department develop that sort of internal guidance. And I'm happy to report that Congress, in fact, in the most recent National Defense Authorization Act, put that requirement on the department as well to institute that internal guidance. So are the methodologies that they've been using for those combats, combat support agencies basically translatable to the rest of the department's business support functions, or would you have to tweak them a little bit to make them relevant to things that are not strictly combat support? That's a good question. I think that the department will need to look specifically at the type of guidance it wants to develop for the defense agencies and field activities, certainly the internal guidance that it has already developed for the combat support agency reviews is a good starting point for the department. Um, but again, I wouldn't want to prescribe 
specifically what that guidance should look like, that really is best left up to the department. Fair enough. Let's pivot to another part of the report then, which is your your kind of deep dive into fragmentation and overlap within the uh, defense agencies and field activities. And you specifically focused on the HR business function. Describe why GAO made that decision to focus on that area in particular and, and tell us a little bit about what you found about duplication and overlap there. Sure. So when we were deciding which business function to examine as part of our review, we decided that we would start by looking at the chartering directives for the various defense agencies and field activities and use that as a way to figure out where there might be some fragmentation or overlap going on. And as we started looking more and more at those chartering directives, we found that the term human resources services kept popping up. And that was a clue for us that we should dig a little deeper. And indeed, indeed, when we did that digging, we found that there are three different defense agencies and field activities that perform many of the same human resources services, not to mention the three military departments as well. And so we felt it was appropriate uh, to take a close look at that function, given how important it is to the operation of the department. And how similar were those services between those, those or similar were the provision of those services between those six different DOD entities? They were really quite similar. So we're talking about everything from developing and posting job announcements to recruiting and screening applicants to processing personnel actions and and managing benefits. And I should say one of the things that we found is that one defense agency and and field activity, the uh, Defense Security Cooperation, or DISCA, in fact, gets human resources services from all six of the components that we found, the three DAFAs and the three military departments. Clearly, that's not the most efficient way to go. Yeah, and I, I may be misremembering, but I think within that particular agency, there there are certain types of services where they're buying the exact same HR service from multiple different DOD agencies, depending on what rank the employee is at, right? That's right. So the Washington Headquarters Service, which is one of the defense agencies and field activities that we found performs HR services, does so for those individuals who are uh, presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed. For other personnel within the Defense Security and Cooperation Agency, they'll use the other DAFAs uh, for many of the same services, just for different people. Why is it inherently a bad thing, though, for there to be a a multiplicity of these types of service providers within DOD? I mean, you could make a theoretical argument, I guess, that it, it might be a good thing for there to be some specialization within the department or for different components of DOD to be competing uh, against one another on on price, on the quality of services that they can offer to a customer. Why is, why is it bad to have, again, a multiplicity of providers here? Well, you're right that theoretically it's not necessarily a bad thing. That's one of the reasons that GAO, through our uh, framework for assessing duplication, overlap, and fragmentation, has very concrete steps that we take when we're assessing this to make sure that really it is unnecessary um, overlap or fragmentation. And in this case, we did, in fact, find concrete examples of where this is a problem. You've already pointed out one of them, which is that uh, customers are essentially paying overhead costs to more than one provider for the same services. But there are other examples we found as well. So, for example, each of the defense agencies and field activities that perform human resources services have different connections to a shared IT system. And what that means is that when one employee at the department transfers from one component to another, they are essentially treated like a new employee, which means a number of uh, Uh, steps have to be taken that were initially taken when they really did first join the department, such as issuing that employee a new common access card, which gives them access to DOD facilities. Another problem we found is that 
the different um, organizations that provide human resources services are measuring a, a key performance statistic differently. OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, has set a government-wide goal of um, hiring individuals within 80 days. But what we found is that the different defense agencies and field activities that perform human resources services are measuring this quote-unquote time to hire statistic differently. That makes it hard for the department to really figure out what the optimal way is of providing HR services. Yeah, and to stick with that point, I think another example that you came up with in the report was that there, there's really no one, including in the chief management officers, the, the, the new CMO's office, who can tell you how much the department as a whole is spending on all of its HRIT systems. So let's 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 finish up there. Talk about how all of the all of the issues that we've been discussing so far hamper ongoing internal reform efforts within DOD and, and particularly within the the OCMO. Well, you're right to place it in this broader context of um, department-wide initiatives to strengthen efficiency and and to to reduce costs. The Office of the Chief Management Officer, as I'm sure you're aware, is currently overseeing nine different cross-functional teams that are trying to reform key business functions within the department. And in fact, one of those teams is looking at human resources services. But when we looked at that team and when we talked with some of the members of that team, we found a few problems. First is that although they had a goal to reduce time to hire averages, that statistic that we just talked about, um, they had no plans to standardize uh, collection of, of data or to, to standardize that measure. That makes it hard for them, again, to, to figure out how to, how to make HR provision more efficient within the department. They also had no clear timeframes for their work, which is a problem. And although one of their goals is to determine what the optimal service delivery model is for the Department for Human Resources, we talked with team members who weren't even aware that there were the problems we had identified with overhead costs. So there's a a lot of work that could be done there. Elizabeth Field is Acting Director for Defense Capabilities and Management at GAO. We'll post a link to the report we've been talking about at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. One last break, and we will stick with Fourth Estate issues when we come back. Mark Kansian from the Center for Strategic and International Studies joins us. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. I'm Jared Serbid. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And sticking with the topic of potential reforms to DOD's fourth estate agencies and field activities for our last few minutes, as we mentioned earlier, a proposal by House Armed Services Chairman Mac Thornberry earlier this year would have gotten rid of a half dozen of those agencies, but the idea died almost as quickly as it was conceived. According to Mark Kansian, a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, that's partly because neither DOD nor Congress had done much in the way of analysis ahead of that proposal. In a recent interview, Kansian told me Congress should continue to take a close look at the fourth estate, but lawmakers ought to do a bit of homework first. Well, there's a real issue with what has become known as the fourth estate. Uh, It has grown over the years from 7% of duties funding to 18% now, so it's essentially the size of a military service. And this has occurred as DOD has created centralized functions that uh, um, you know, pull from all of the services like logistics uh, or IT, and also as specialized functions uh, become uh, their own organization like POW, uh, remains uh, repatriation, and arms control agreements. 
uh, enforcement. But as this fourth estate has grown and as these centralized activities have been created, there's a feeling that they've lost connection to their ultimate customers, that they've become distant. There's also a feeling that going with that, that they don't get the same budget scrub that the services get. The services feel that when they go through the internal scrubs with uh, uh, the OSD budget office and um, now called CAPE, and then when they go externally with the, the Congress, that they every line of their budget is looked at and critiqued, and they don't feel that the defense agencies and field activities go through that same process. And there's some validity to that. The agencies have not had the kind of scrutiny that the services have had. So there's a real, a real question there and a real frustration, in, particularly in the services. And just to get back to a point you were making a second ago, at, I, on the rare, in the rare instances where the Fourth Estate does get scrutiny from Congress, it's in a weird way because a, a lot of the growth, certainly some of it has just been natural bureaucratic sprawl, but a lot of it has been intentional decisions by Congress and by DOD to move some support functions that had been done by the military services into centralized joint agencies. So it's weird to then go back 15 or 20 years later and say, gee, how did these organizations get so big? Absolutely. And uh, it started with uh, what's become the Defense Logistics Agency, and now many functions have been uh, centralized. Uh, The Congress has uh, agreed to that in the interests of being more efficient and saving money. And arguably, they've They've done that. And back in the 1990s, when there was a similar frustration, uh, then Secretary Perry went back to the military services and said, do you, do you want to break up some of these centralized functions? Do you want to take those functions back into the services? And they all said no, because they realized that it would be very expensive and it would dilute their focus. They're able to focus more on war fighting now, and they don't have to worry about some of these uh, su- support functions. Um, let's talk a bit about the Thornberry proposal. I, I, I think... He would, he would acknowledge that he was being a little bit intentionally provocative. I don't think he intended his proposal to pass exactly as it was written. But what one of the most surprising things about the whole thing to me was that he, he didn't really seem to be grappling with questions of, okay, what are the missions that these agencies do? And if the agency goes away, where does the work go? Well, that's, that's it exactly. He you know, originally proposed eliminating, uh, I think, seven uh, agencies, and those, that was progressively teared down as he went to the committee and then uh, went to the floor. So, that, that, you know, he, he was not able to um, build a movement to take action there. And part of that arose from the fact that they really, frankly, hadn't done their homework. There had only been one hearing about the fourth estate. Uh, they had two uh, good uh, witnesses who both pointed out uh, the value of reform, but also the difficulty uh, in reform. When McCain was overhauling organization and processes in DOD and what was sometimes called Goldwater Nichols 2.0, he had, I think, six hearings and 37 witnesses. So he did a a lot of homework with his staff before they put some things up. And even then, much of what they put up uh, uh, in the end didn't stick. But but they had a a much more solid um, grounding for what they uh, proposed. And I suspect that that what's going to happen is that there'll be something in the final uh, bill, and then next year, if they want to push this, they'll have a series of hearings on the fourth estate. 
the 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 lack of homework and lack of preparation that was done in preparation for this round who can we blame for it is it is it a lack of member interest is it inadequate staff work is it just not enough staff um to to do kind of the drudgery that you would need to do to do this right i i can't say for sure i mean i can say two things one is i i think it popped up late uh that uh, the interest in doing something dramatic was uh, something that came well into the uh, hearing season so that there wasn't a lot of time uh, mm-hmm. to do the preparation. The other thing is this stuff is both boring and hard. It's boring in that you're talking about the part services of various kinds, you know, logistics, you're talking about arms control uh, uh, implementation, you're talking about schools, you're talking about healthcare delivery, and it doesn't have the excitement of talking about nuclear weapons in North Korea and you know, fight tonight uh, and those kind of topics. So it's boring and it's also hard because when you start thinking about making major changes, for example, to schools or to healthcare, you know, the people affected can be very vocal. So you have to really think through what you want to do uh, before you put it out there. So I think for both reasons, it didn't, uh, you know, get the preparation that it really needed. In your op-ed, though, you suggest that one of the things Mr. Thornberry probably got right here was putting the chief management officer in charge of a lot of that boring stuff because he's got the time and the bandwidth uh, to actually do that scrub, right? Yes, and and that's a worthwhile process change because in the past, the agencies were overseen by elements of the OSD staff, and those elements really had very little incentive to look hard, and they had very little capability to look hard. You know, for example, Defense Logistics Agency came under what was then AT&L, uh, AT&L has been uh, broken up, but you know, they didn't have an office for looking at DLA, they didn't really have the tools, and it really wasn't worthwhile. I mean, what, what was the point of really scrubbing DLA hard, pissing off the agency so you could save a few bucks to get them thrown back into the hopper mm-hmm. uh, to go someplace else? So for all those reasons, they they did not get a good scrub, and therefore putting uh, uh, in place a process whereby the chief management officer would look at these uh, is uh, likely to be more effective because the chief management officer very much has a charter to, to scrub processes and organizations uh, hard, to ask some tough questions. Uh, they are not proponents for these agencies the way that the uh, previous alignment was. So you're more likely to have the kind of a scrub that the services have been asking for. Aside from uh, a more empowered CMO, what what other recommendations would you make for Congress the next time they take a run at this fourth estate reform issue? Well, the obvious one is to do the, the boring homework in terms of hearings and witnesses to identify places where you might have some leverage and what the questions that really drive the size of the fourth estate. And some of that's going to be very hard. Um, you might be asking some tough questions about whether DOD should be in the domestic school business, whether they should be funding non-war fighting medical research. There are also a couple of other things that you can look at. Uh, uh, you, you can establish some metrics, for example, for the agencies, and the Deputy Secretary uh, Shanahan is very focused on that coming out of the private sector. You can look at the incentive structure so that money that's saved may go into uh, similar activities, for example, uh, if you're taking money out of DLA, you may give them some incentives to find savings to, so they could put it in some other places. And then at the end, I would also say, don't reorganize just to do something. And sometimes there's interest in 
you know, showing that Congress is involved, so they're going to reorganize even if they haven't really thought through it. And DOD is still reeling from the last reorganization, that is the breakup of AT&L. Um, that new structure has been put in place, but you know they're still moving desks around the Pentagon and figuring out who works for who and who does what. So doing something just to do something will you know, disrupt the organization at a time when it's already um, uh, making a lot of changes. Last question. If Congress does pull off a successful fourth estate reorganization, I think one thing I would worry about is it would be another one-and-done exercise. It seems like for there to be anything effective, it's got to be a sustained effort wherein Congress does some kind of ongoing oversight over the defense agencies, which you said are now the size of a, of a military department, in the same way they do ongoing oversight of the military departments. And there's just not much interest there as far as I can see. No, I think that I think that's right. I think putting the CMO in charge internally is a good step in that direction in terms of getting a continual uh, review. But Congress may actually have to stand up a subcommittee you know, on the fourth estate on support, um, which is, as I said, very boring compared to nuclear weapons and ships and aircraft. But because that's now 19% or 18% of the defense budget, you just might have to take the committee staff and uh, um, committee structure uh, to dedicate to that large a chunk of uh, department does. That's Mark Kansian, a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Just before that, we heard from Elizabeth Field from the Government Accountability Office on GAO's new study that found DOD's been essentially ignoring its legal mandate to do its own analysis of the fourth estate agencies. We'll post links to more information, along with the full audio of this week's program, at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD and in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast. One. That's it for this week's show. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.